Good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Park Hill. I know Aaliyah welcomed you. I'll welcome you also. My name's Evan. My wife, Sandy, and I have the honor and privilege, really, of leading this church. Today is week two in a 12-week series in the book of Revelation, or more accurately titled, The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Last Sunday was the intro teaching where we discovered that big, scary word, apocalypse, is actually a really good word in the scriptures. It means unveiling or pulling the curtain back. Just like when clouds part and you realize the sun was there all along, this book pulls back the curtain of reality as we know it, and it opens us to that which is unseen. And we realize Jesus Christ is here. Like he's been here all along and his kingdom is breaking in. Even though in this moment, from our limited perspective, it seems like politicians are running things or it seems like the media has all the influence. And if we're honest, guys, it often seems like it would be easier to be a Christian if we compromised faithfulness to Jesus. Like let go of Jesus' teachings and update our ethics to fix the current mood, whether it's around money or sex or how we steward our influence, air quotes, or whatever. The apocalypse of Jesus, it wakes us up and it reminds us things are more than they seem. One day the clouds will be gone and every eye will see reality as it is. And Jesus has been here all along. By the way, we have a resident artist in the back of the room. He's painting a beautiful, there he is, Joel Briggs. He's painting a beautiful image of Jesus and uh, Jesus and Thomas. And, and as we progress through the fall and through the Revelation series, we're gonna see more and more of what the artist intends us to see about Jesus, very much like what is happening in the book of Revelation. This is, Revelation is really bad news in a sense. For who? For Satan and death and sin. Revelation is bad news for, for death and all his friends, right? Everyone who follows sin and Satan. Uh, but this apocalypse is really good news for everyone who admits their need for Jesus' forgiveness and healing and follows him. So the invitation, now you can do the slide. Sorry, that was a curveball. The invitation is open to everyone everywhere in the world today, regardless of race, color, what religion you were raised in, your sex, gender, orientation, age, disability, you name it, all are invited equally to come and worship Jesus as he is, to surrender our identities and desires to him, admit our need of his forgiveness and healing, and join his family forever. This is the invitation of the apocalypse. So now remember, this last book of the Bible is a letter. It's a letter written by John, one of the earliest Jesus followers, and he writes to seven first century churches in ancient Asia Minor, which is now modern day Turkey. I don't know if we have our Turkish, I don't know if she's here in the room, Tilbe, but anyways, we have a Turk. So, uh, so, so uh, this letter is really a pastoral letter, and it starts out, John, to the seven churches in Asia, grace and peace to you. It sounds like a letter, because it, it is. While John is exiled on the prisoned island of Patmos, we made the joke about Azkaban last week, it's a prison island, just like in Harry Potter. John is on this ancient island, it's still there, but back then, Rome used it as a prison. And, and he's worshiping, and as he's worshiping in prison, John gets a vision from Jesus. And he writes this letter to relay the vision drama. It's a drama, and it unfolds like a play. 
And like all such first century letters, John's letter is meant to be read out loud. So um, verse 3 says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear it. So in a moment, we're going to have Angel come up and read, like literal, his name is Angel, he's not an angel. He might be an angel might actually be an angel. But blessed is the one who reads out loud. So picture, so picture a messenger standing up in the middle of the room. This is what would happen, except the room would be a lot smaller, a little house church, maybe 50 people max. And, and this little church would be, would be listening, and one would stand up to read, and they hear this letter from their beloved pastor in prison. They're like, our beloved pastor from jail has a letter, and this, this angel, like literally, this messenger is actually the word of, that's translated angel. I just thought of this right now, which is hilarious. Uh, the word messenger and angel is the same Greek word, and he'd read the letter. Wow, this is so coincidental, it's actually cheesy. But um, so, so this morning, we're going to hear the opening act of the drama, and Angel Wilson is going to read it out loud. So open your Bibles to Revelation 1, 9 through 20. And read it, but more importantly, listen. Because this vision was meant to be heard. And we see as we hear. So, come on, angel. This is Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. And it reads, I, John your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Verse 10, on the Lord's day I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Verse 12, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. Verse 20, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Beautiful. Let's pray. Jesus, we recognize you now, the living one in the middle of it all. 
the one with the keys to death itself. You unlock the way to life. May we hear you fully as evidenced by our obedience. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There it is, the opening scene of the drama of Revelation 1. And the result is John falls down at Jesus' feet, quote, as though dead, right? And it it makes sense. You don't just sit casually when you see Jesus clearly. For many people in San Diego, Jesus exists as just kind of a faraway fantasy figure, a casual, really great idea out there somewhere. For others, including a lot of really excited Christians, maybe you're one of these, maybe hopefully we're all excited, but uh, for a lot of enthusiastic Christians, Jesus is someone we have a really close personal relationship, intimacy with, right? Which is 100% true. John would not disagree, but at the same time, John would warn us against imagining Jesus as this warm, cozy figure who exists to make me feel happy inside. According to John here, the result of seeing the true Jesus as he is is not to snuggle up to him and nibble on his ear or whatever, but to fall at his feet as though we're dead. No wonder the book of Revelation is full of songs. It moves with these about five worship movements that culminate with an explosion of praise, songs and hymns all through Revelation. What, because what else can we do when we experience an apocalypse but worship? A revelation of Jesus. And so today we experience Jesus head on, the real Jesus. Act one, scene one, John's vision, it's Jesus center stage. You know like in a movie, in the first couple minutes you get the hero shot? Like the camera gets straight on the hero's face, the main good guy? So this is the hero shot of, of, the, of the play. That's what happens. So before we walk through the text real quick, remember from last week, apocalyptic literature which Revelation is, it's a genre, an ancient genre. Apocalyptic literature has two purposes. You're sitting here listening to Revelation for two big reasons. And if we keep these reasons in mind, I think we'll stay on track and experience joy and courage. So the first practical purpose of apocalyptic is to bring hope by setting your present moment and all of your uncertainty in light of your future. You don't just see the present like narrow vision. You see the present in light of what's coming, and it gives you hope. And number two, the second purpose of apocalyptic is to set our present moment in all of our insecurity and uncertainty in light of the unseen realities of the present around you right now. Because remember, things are more than they seem. This is the primary, right in the center of the message of Revelation, wake up. Things are more than they seem. And it turns out the greatest unseen reality of the present is the incarnate, crucified, risen, ascended, and coming Jesus. It's the greatest unseen reality at all times, Jesus. And the question we'll keep coming back to is, do you believe this? Do you believe, does the church in our time believe this, that the greatest unseen reality in San Diego is a person? The greatest unseen reality in your life is a person. So John would say to us, until we believe this, we don't have a clue what's really going on. 
So let's step into John's vision, all right? We're stepping in, Revelation 1. We're going to finish this chapter. Next week is Revelation 2 and 3, all in one shot. So Revelation 1, it's probably, the date is probably the 90s. I don't mean like 1990s, like literal AD 90s. So almost 2,000 years ago, 1900, it's John in the 90s, and he's on this prison island, a Roman prison island. And this is where Romans would send their criminals, in particular, their political troublemakers. So what did John do to make himself a political agitator? Well, the emperor at that time was a guy named Domitian, and Domitian was historically, he's allegedly a very insecure dictator. Imagine that. Most dictators seem to be very insecure. So historians say Domitian was, quote, prone to suspicion and, quote, had a self-deprecating sense of humor, a dark sense of humor, and, and also was extremely sensitive regarding his baldness which I think is interesting. Maybe he has a toupee, I don't know. So Domitian, Domitian ordered that all the citizens of Rome should worship him as Domine et Deus, Lord and God. I am your Lord and God, say so. Tell me that I'm Lord and God, is what he commanded. So you could believe anything else you wanted. You could believe in any gods, many gods, uh, goddesses, ideas, you could have any ideas you want, as long as you say the words that held the empire together, Caesar is Lord. Kaiser Curios, it's all over the money back then. Caesar is Lord. And so John is likely in his 80s now, and he's been walking with Jesus for the majority of his life. And do you think John, an 80-year-old disciple of Jesus, do you think he's about to bow the knee to Caesar? Heck no. Uh, he's not going to bow the knee to a mere mortal who's claiming the place only God can claim. And so John, I think respectfully, he, he declines from pledging allegiance to the state, and he refuses the, the emperor's edict. And in so doing, John becomes an atheist. That's what Romans called Christians that would abstain from their allegiance. They're like, this guy's an atheist. He denies all the gods except one random god, plus he denies Caesar. He's an atheist. They'd use that word. And so John is sent to Patmos to rot. And now this is a crisis. Imagine this is you. It's a personal crisis for John. Like, God, is this what happens to your kids? Like, we serve you with our whole lives only to end up suffering. It's also a community crisis. It's like, God, our spiritual leader, our pastor, our beloved pastor is gone. He got taken out by the state. Like, what do we do now? Is it even worth it to stay in the church? Because all our leaders are being taken out. Is it even worth it to stay in the church? Is this an institution worth saving? And it's also a theological crisis. Like, if Jesus is Lord, can't he take care of his followers? I mean, this kind of suffering doesn't make sense. It's a theological crisis. This was number one question in our alpha group, by the way. So Sandy and I are leading an alpha group, and, and the first night of alpha two weeks ago, by the way, it's going amazing, you guys. Uh, like Aaliyah said, 75 people sharing the big questions of life. The last Tuesday to sign up and be part of it is this Tuesday. Uh, before signups are closed, you gotta wait for the next round. And, and in the group I'm leading, on night one, I just threw out the question. I'm like, hey, 
Uh, assuming there's a God, let's just start from scratch, no basic knowledge of God. We won't even say God's a he or she. Let's just start from scratch. Assuming there's a God, and you could ask this God one question, what would it be? And almost everyone had their own version of the same question. It's like, come on, God, why the suffering, like for real, with real personal reasons behind these questions? And then just giving space for people to speak their mind, it was a beautiful moment for a lot of us. So maybe you resonate with this right now. Have you ever faced such a crisis, an event in your life that calls into question the very foundation of the gospel? Come on, God, for real. If you've ever been there, then you're in good company with John, the revelator, the evangelist, the writer of the Bible. This is what's happening with John and his community. It's like, God, why? And, and here's how John responded. I think this lights the way for us. He responded, he starts it out, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. This is, this is what he's doing in the midst of suffering. I'm choosing to be in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That's what you're doing right now gathering on the first day of the week. So I, I, I want to say that's where you want to be when you're going through suffering, in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, whether it's a church building or a house or a community group or a prison island. You want to be in the Spirit. In the middle of a crisis, John's like, I was in the Spirit. What does that mean? It means I'm trusting the Spirit. I'm physically, mentally, emotionally turning to the Spirit as best I can. I'm working with the Spirit. I'm cooperating with the Spirit as the Spirit enables me to worship in my crisis. It's, it's really trust. Being in the Spirit is really childlike trust. I don't get it. How long, O oh Lord, till the suffering ends? But until then, I wait on you. I hope in you. That's in the Spirit. And then look what happens. I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. And okay, John knew the Old Testament. And so he knows what trumpets mean. Uh, trumpets in the Bible always mean, hey, pay attention. <laughs> God's about to do stuff. Like in Joshua 6, Battle of Jericho, trumpets, pay attention. God's strong. He's about to fight for us. And Exodus 19, pay attention and gather because God is close to us. And Leviticus 23, pay attention and feast because God is good. So it's always trumpets <laughs> that say, pay attention. And so wait, in prison? Pay attention, yeah. In my grief and my loss, trumpets are calling me to pay attention, yes. John's answer is like, yes, even here in your prison and in mine, I turned to see the voice. Remember from last week, that is worship in one line. Wherever you are today, whether, whatever you're suffering through, many of us are suffering through things in different ways, whether it's personal, mental, or it's social and relational, or it's physical pain, chronic illness. This is worship and what, whatever you're dealing with, you are invited to turn, to posture yourself, to see, to acknowledge his authority and goodness, and that he's the voice that speaks. I trust that you will speak for my good. That invitation is open to you today. Whatever you're suffering through, and, and verse 12, when I turned, I saw the seven golden lampstands. This is the first thing he sees. For ancient Jews, he knows what this is. Seven lampstands, 
He knew his Bible, the holiest place on earth. What's the holiest place on earth for ancient Jews? The Holy of Holies. So that's in the temple, right? And in the temple is the holiest spot, which is what Tanika said. It's the Holy of Holies, the super holy place. And, and so just outside of that hot spot, the holy, holiest place, just outside the veil, was this, this seven-layered candle with seven branches. And the priest's job was to keep all seven burning, okay? This is ancient Israelite culture. So to light the candles, the priest would come in and he would, quote, be dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet. That's what John says in Revelation. Do you see what John's doing? John is overlaying his experience with Old Testament realities. He's trusting the Spirit, trusting the Spirit on his prison island. And guess what? Guess what this means? Even a prisoner can become a priest in the presence of the Holy One. Are you a prisoner in suffering? You don't know what to do, but if your eyes are on Jesus, even a prisoner becomes a priest in the presence of Jesus. Whatever your present circumstance right now, you're invited to see this. Things are more than they seem. See the greatest unseen reality behind your circumstance? It's this Holy One, Jesus, who's ready to baptize your reality in his love. In the middle of your mess, Jesus invites you to experience his goodness. And that's what John experiences. Verse 13, I saw in the middle of the lampstands someone like a son of man. So your NIV translation, it says I saw among the lampstands, but it's actually more specific. It's I saw Christ in the center, in the middle. It's not just among, nearby. <laughs> it's dead center. Jesus Christ is in the dead center of your mess. Now, John, Jesus tells John specifically what these lampstands mean. In verse 20 of this chapter, he says the seven lampstands are the churches. You guys are these lampstands. Do you realize what this means? The hope. This, I hope, brings you comfort and hope. Listen, not only is John discovering that Christ is there with him in prison, that's amazing. Christ is with me in my mess, that's amazing. But Jesus goes further. Oh my, this is the part of the sermon prep that actually got me emotional, which doesn't always happen. Like actually shedding tears by myself, analytically dissecting text or whatever. Uh, this, this one got me. Uh, Jesus goes, for, it's not just Christ in the middle of your mess. He shows John that Jesus is there in the middle of every single one of those precious little churches that he can't reach. Imagine the comfort that John's like, Oh, Jesus has them. Jesus is in their midst. He's dead center in their mess. He's Christ in their middle. Not just for John, but for John's family in crisis. So I, I want to ask you, are you worried about somebody in crisis today? I won't ask for a show of hands, but are you worried about someone who's suffering right now? Existential, mental, emotional, physical, maybe feeling alone, Maybe their faith is in crisis, and for whatever reason, you can't be what you, need, what you think you need to be for them. You can't get through in the way you think you need to, and it kills you. Listen, receive peace from this opening vision of Jesus 
Because Jesus isn't just above his people looking down. He's not just outside looking in. He's Christ in the middle. He's Christ in the middle of his people, in the very center. He's in the middle of that suffering you can't fix right now. And he's in the middle of Park Hill. Christ is in the midst of you. He's in the middle of your community group dinner when you set the table and only three people show up. He's in the middle of that confusing, complicated miscommunication between brothers and sisters. We've all been there where words are said and you can't take them back and the feelings are real. Christ is right there in the mess of it all. Just like he's in the middle of the thousands of underground church gatherings in Iran who despite intense persecution are making up the fastest growing church in the world today, Jesus has them. They know this. In Iran, they're like, Jesus has us. He's lighting our, he's lighting our lives on fire. He has us. And he has you. He's Christ in the middle. Welcome to the apocalypse, ladies and gentlemen. You're invited to see. And to bring this home, for the rest of this sermon, for the rest of this time, I want to focus on three main features of this great unseen reality. Three main features. First of all, just one word, voice. Voice is the star of the show in Revelation 1. Dominant image. The word happens three times. Verse 10, I heard a loud voice behind me. Verse 12, I turned to see. And verse 15, the voice was like the sound of many waters. So the voice is the main character. I think this is Jesus' way of saying the most basic practice of discipleship is listening. Because in Jesus' world, hearing is obeying is seeing. Just like Jesus famously told his followers, if you love me, obey me. It's popular today to hear people pit doctrine against loving people or something. There are very unloving ways to be right. But if you give up love in order to be knowledgeable, you are no longer obeying Jesus and therefore no longer right. If you love me, keep my commands. To love Jesus is to hear Jesus is to obey Jesus. No wonder this first image Jesus uses for this drama, the first hero shot of the play, the hero shot is this, this voice personified, the trust, trustworthy voice that speaks for your good and God's glory only. Do you believe this? Do you trust Jesus? Do you trust that he's the, the voice? This calls to mind the moment in John 6 when a bunch of people are quitting. They're quitting Jesus. It says many of his disciples turned away because Jesus was getting hard. His words were getting hard, hard to listen to. And Jesus is like, hey, 12 disciples, are you guys going to quit on me too? Are my words too hard for you? Are you going to leave too? John 6, 68. And then Peter's response is everything. He's like, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter's seeing clearly. He's like, what other influence leads us to reality and fullness and eternal meaning and purpose? Only Jesus' voice. 
So I ask you, is Jesus the primary voice in your life? Like primarily the influence that's shaping you, that's giving you your values. Are you submitting your desires to his voice? Believing his voice even more trustworthy than your own? Do you believe Jesus' voice is even more trustworthy than, you, than yours? This is the question the first question Revelation poses to us is Jesus the voice in your life? And now, uh, to bring us here, John does something very cool, I think, in the text. Incredibly cool. So the so next few minutes might feel like a classroom, like, what are we doing on a Sunday morning? This is weird, but I promise it's not a distraction. I think this will help us experience Jesus and his voice. So stick with me. Remember, the bullseye is the voice in this chapter, and it really comes through in John's word art. John does word art here. Um, so he uses a way of writing that's common in the first century Middle East, and it's still common in Middle Eastern communication today. This way of writing is called a chiasm. Just for fun, can you say that? Chiasm. Yeah, yeah. This way of writing, which happens a lot in the Bible, especially in the Psalms, in Tim Mackey's words, it's the way the words are structured. They can communicate a message just as powerful as the words themselves. So there's word art. So the words mean something, but then the word art means something too. So, so, so if, think of a mirror. You have a pair of images reflecting each other. That's like a chiasm. It's a pair of words or phrases that mirror each other's meanings. And when you find like a sandwich, when you find multiple layers paired like this and they get closer and closer together in the text, the middle one tends to be the focus the writer wants us to, to focus on. So does that make sense? So, so here's a visual just to help it make more sense. Instead of how we Westerners write and think in a straight line, like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, that's how we read, a chiasm moves differently. It's like from left one, two, three, and then four is at the front of this V, and it goes back five, six, seven. So think like a flock of geese. The one in the front is doing all the heavy lifting, right? And, and pushing the air to the geese in the back. So, so in that one, the number four is like the front runner, right? So, so, so the main point in a chiasm, the main point is not number seven, but uh, like in Western communication, the, instead the, the point or the focus is found in the middle, in the middle of the chiasm. This is how a lot of the Bible's put together, tons of the Psalms, the prophets, uh, Tim Mackey, the Bible Project guy, he even points out the whole book of Esther is one giant chiasm, just themes that mirror each other, the first and last, and then inner, and then inner, and you go to the middle. If you read the whole book of Esther, you'll see that. So, so here we go. Let's look at the, the climax of this first chapter. It's verses 14, 15, and 16. It's the high point because it's the description of Jesus physically. In this description of Jesus, we see a powerful word art in motion. And so uh, here it is, put it, there it is, put on the screen. You see Jesus' body parts. So the hair on his head, and then his eyes like blazing fire, his feet bronze, his voice like water, his right hand, his mouth, his face. You see seven, seven body parts, seven parts of Jesus. And it's describing Jesus' physical appearance. Now, 
John uses all kinds of Old Testament imagery we're not going to get into today. I highly recommend you take 30 minutes this week to like go to that text and double-click on the cross-references and see where those descriptions come from in the Old Testament and just start worshiping because it's amazing. So rather than getting lost in the different parts of Jesus' body, I want to take in the whole view. Take in the whole view. So remember, don't read in a straight line. So don't read number one head, number two eyes, feet, hand voice, mouth, face, don't read straight through, because if you read straight through, the portrait kind of jumps around. Instead, read it like this. Do you have the next slide? There it is. So head, eyes, feet, voice, hand, mouth, face. This is intentional. So we're supposed to read across this chiasm and see head and face together, eyes and mouth together, feet and hands together, all culminating with something that's not actually a body part, is it? It's, a voice isn't a part of your body. He is the voice. He is the point. Why is this important? This Eugene Peterson uh, has an amazing, amazing commentary on Revelation called Reversed Thunder. Highly recommend it. And he suggests the head and face. You have the, the next slide. Let's focus on head and face. The head and face of Jesus, they mirror each other because the head and the face are the first and last impressions of a person, right? And, and the head and face are the glory. The head and face are the glory. Uh, think of someone's hair. Many times in Scripture, the glory is the hair and the face shines. So, and Daniel 7, way back, it talks about the Son of Man having uh, blazing fire on his, on his head, his face and hair. And this Son of Man shares authority with God. So, so head and face, wisdom and glory. And then move into the eyes and mouth. Look, we're getting closer. Eyes and mouth go together because they're the organs of relationship, Peterson says. The eyes and the mouth, when you lock eyes or when you lock mouths, when you are close face-to-face, mouth-to-mouth, there is a purification and there is a relationship and there's a new family that is formed from this. And, and Daniel 10 says, eyes of fire. He's pulling from that. He says, these eyes are fire, which means this man shares identity with God. And Isaiah 1 talks about the mouth like a sword because his words cut. His words cut away that which does not belong. You guys, this is what God is doing through Jesus to make a family. And then move into the feet and hand. The feet and hand, they go together because they're parts of the body that express power, capability. Jesus gets it done, right? Feet and hands, the raw power of Jesus over everything capable of protecting you and protecting the ones you're worried about and providing for you and providing for the universe. It says Jesus upholds all things. His hands are strong. It truly does. The old hymn, 100-year-old hymn is true. He's got the whole world right there in his hands. And all of this leads up to the central body part, which isn't even a body part. It's the whole thing. It's the voice, the word. Jesus himself, the voice, like the sound of many waters. You guys, this voice can drown out all the other voices. I, I, what immediately comes to mind is, you know, that show, um, A Quiet Place, where the aliens respond to sound, right? Terrifying movie. And, and, but there's that moment when John Krasinski takes his son to a waterfall in the first episode, in the first 
movie. And, 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 he, and John Krasinski looks, he looks at his son and he speaks to him clearly for the first time. It's like, <gasps> you hear his voice and, and the son's like, don't talk. He's like, it's okay. The waters are stronger. And, and the waters drown out all other noises and protect us from evil. It's a beautiful metaphor for this voice. Like the sound of many waters, says John, able to drown out all the other voices that are clamoring for your attention. All the other voices are clamoring to make you your own voice and to make me my own authority and pledge allegiance to me. Again, the whole point of Revelation 1 is, listen, are you listening? The basic call of discipleship, listen to me. The implication is this church wasn't listening. Can you imagine Christians not listening to Jesus? Sarcasm, right? It's not hard to imagine Christians not listening to Jesus. So Jesus writes to them. In fact, they were listening to things, it's just they were listening to the wrong voices. They were listening to the threatening voice of the emperor, the pull of partisan power, to the seductive voice of culture that promised comfort and security through wealth and military power. They were, they were listening to the voices that say, hey, you guys, here's the voice. They were saying, hey, it's totally possible to confess Jesus as Lord on Sunday and live for idols on Monday. It's totally possible, come on. They were listening to that. We're all listening to voices. The question is, who are you listening to? So there's a voice, and then quickly, the second feature is that this voice speaks now. This voice is speaking right now. He gives two commands, two, and they turn out to be the two great commands of the end of the Bible. Look, here's the two commands. Do not be afraid and look. Do not be afraid and look. And guess what? It turns out when you obey, we obey the first command by obeying the second. It's when we look that we're no longer afraid. When I'm afraid, it's because I'm not really looking. Or more like I'm not looking at the right place. I'm taking cues from culture, again, preoccupied by, maybe I'm lamenting the demise of democracy or the rise of addictions and I'm just getting worried and it's making me not look at Jesus. I'm not looking at the risen, ascended Lord of life. And Jesus is saying to you, look. He's saying to John in jail, Look, I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever. I'm the first and last. I'm the living one, not them. You've got to look at me because things are more than they seem. Do you believe this? So, so it turns out we, we look by listening. We see by hearing. You will not see until you hear and obey. That's when you see, and when you see, you're not afraid anymore. Are you afraid? Well, then look. One of Jesus' favorite sayings, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. To hear Jesus is to obey Jesus. It's the only way to see Jesus. It's the only way to see him. And then finally, the third major feature of this opening vision is this phrase, in the middle. In the middle. There's a voice that speaks, and he's in the middle. We've said this. This is actually the title of the sermon, Christ in the Middle. 
Not just from above, not just from outside, but from our midst, from the middle. From the middle of the church, from the middle of the candlesticks, just like the image. But listen, John's gonna discover as the drama unfold that Jesus speaks from the middle of other places. Jesus is speaking from the middle of everything. In Revelation 5, we see, we hear, the lion has triumphed, the lion of Judah, and John turns expecting to see a lion. What does he see instead? I turned, I heard about a lion, I turned to see a lamb that looks like it has been slaughtered, standing in the middle of the throne. You guys, the lamb is in the middle of the throne. There's no way the lamb can be standing in the middle of the throne unless he's standing in the middle of God. Who sits on the throne? Which he hit. Oh my gosh. Which means he stands at the middle of everything. This voice speaks from the middle of everything. Do you believe this? Does the church in 2022 believe this, that Jesus Christ stands at the center, that he is the center? As I reflect on this vision, this apocalypse of Jesus, I, it, it led my mind to think about the so-called marginalization of the church in the West. You know, we've heard the stats. Many, a lot, a lot of believers and church leaders are feeling spiritually marginalized right now by culture, by secularism, by politics, whatever, politics, marginalized by power structures that seem to be controlling our lives. By the way, I'm not talking about the real experience of personally being marginalized because of race, color, sex, gender, or whatever else. I'm not talking about that kind of marginalization. Jesus fights against that kind of marginalization, and so should we. I'm talking about spiritual marginalization. A lot of Christians are feeling spiritually pushed out. And that's understandable, I think, right? A lot of our culture doesn't seem to care that the church even exists. But what have we been talking about? As I reflect on this picture of Jesus, the real crisis, listen, the real crisis for us right now is not that the church might be marginalized. The crisis is that we feel marginalized. You guys, we only feel marginalized when we think we're not in the center. So we feel marginalized relative to Hollywood because we think Hollywood's the center, or we feel marginalized by the news, or by Washington, D.C., because it seems like the news or D.C. is the center. But listen, things are more than they seem. Hollywood's not the center of the universe, not dissing Hollywood, it's just saying it's not the center. DC, the media, Apple, Meta, they're not the center. I'm not dissing those companies. I'm just saying they're not the center. The center is a person. The center of everything is a person. And in reality, everything that is not submitted to that person is actually on the margins. Do you believe this? Whatever is not true to Jesus is actually on the margins of reality. Do you believe this? The church in our time feels spiritually marginalized because we've allowed our souls to give in to the illusions around us and we're now assessing our own worth and our ministries against false centers. And so Jesus from the middle says, look, listen, look, look in the middle. 
The risen, ascended Christ speaks from the middle. And so I believe Jesus is saying to you and to me and, and, and to the Western church or whatever, to the whole church, he's saying to me and you, you get discouraged and disoriented because you're just distracted from the middle. I believe he's saying, you, you think, you think that in order to have influence in your city or in your job, you need something more attractive than me. You think you need something more concrete than me something more marketable than me, something that's more popular with the cultural consensus than me, something more believable than me. And Jesus is saying, no. Like what you need is an apocalypse. You need to see your present moment in light of your future. You need to see your present in light of present reality that you can't see unaided. And Jesus says, I am the great unseen reality of the present. Listen to me, look at me, I got the keys. In this chapter one, he's like, I have the keys to death and hell. No one else has the keys to death and Hades. And if I have the keys, then I have the keys to everything else. Look, look, don't be afraid. I've got the keys. Do you believe this? Where are you tempted to disbelieve this? So we're gonna end by just being still. The, the, the worship band is gonna come up right now yeah Michael's gonna tickle the ivories we love you Michael he's been here a couple years God's leading his family out into a new mission after this week praise God for you and Tina in our church so Michael's gonna play the keys and Drew's gonna lead with Tanika and so we're gonna be still and here's the invitation Christ in the middle invites you right now to name anything you're afraid of, anything. Anything that's causing you fear, look. And therefore, don't be afraid, look. So name that thing. What is that thing you're afraid of? What is that grief and loss? that is the prison from which Jesus is inviting you to worship. Invite Jesus, here it is. Name the grief, name the fear, and then invite Jesus to use his keys to set you free. What would that look like in your life? Before we come to the table, we're gonna just be still. Feel free to stand or sit, but just be still for a minute without singing. And then I'll come and lead us into a time of prayerful response. So right now, Holy Spirit, would you come? Feel free to take a deep breath. You know, they say, I guess, four seconds in, but a long eight-second breath out. And just acknowledge the breath of God is here, saying, look at the middle. I'm in the middle. I'm in their middle. You're worried about them. I'm, I'm with them. I'm with you. The Spirit might even be saying, I know it's hard to trust. I know. I've been tempted not to trust the Father. Jesus has been tempted to not trust. The story is recorded in the Gospels. Where's that temptation for you? He invites you, look. 
I never give up on my church. I never give up on my kids. Where are you doubting that? <laughs> so for 60 seconds, just breathe. Name your fear to the God who's present in the middle. 